Hi everyone, welcome to episode 23 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, we really appreciate it if you go back to episode 1 and have a listen. Please do rate, review and tell your friends, family, whoever may know about the podcast. It really makes a huge difference and you know, it means a huge amount to us. Um, we'd like to give a shout out to the guys up there in Mayo, GRG Sports, who have been a great help over the last couple of weeks with podcast and guys we really, really appreciate it as well um so if you're looking for anything over the christmas period or going into the new year in relation to you know uh clubs or in relation to your own work be sure to get in contact with them they'd be more than happy to sort those any type of merchandise um so i suppose look we'll, we'll go straight into it on this week's episode we have former professional rugby player traveler and adventurer damien brown he hails from Galway and spent 16 years battling on the rugby pitches of the Celtic League, English Premiership and French Top 14 until he was met with the difficult decision of retiring due to injury. His career saw him achieve many honours including winning the 2011-2012 Heineken Cup with Leinster Rugby. From mountain climbing to marathon de Sablos to rowing the Atlantic, Damien has pushed himself to extreme limits since retiring. Hi Damien, welcome to the View podcast. How are you keeping? I'm very, very well, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. How has the last, you know, the past year been for you? Um, you know, especially I suppose since lockdown kicked in and I know you had, um, you had the challenge of completing the, the seven summits. Um, do you mm. want to just give us an overview of how, how it's been and how you dealt with the, you know, unforeseen events? Yeah, so um, it's been, honestly, it's been pretty challenging. Um, I, um, my kind of career, I suppose, even though, you know, I do sometimes wonder if it actually is a career, it's more of a purpose or a passion. But what I do is kind of, <laughs> international travel is pretty important. And, and you know, with that wiped off, um, you know, in, in most cases, the face of the earth. So I haven't really been able to do much in terms of expeditions, in terms of travels, in terms of adventures or challenges. Um, the main one obviously been about two and a half weeks before they announced, um, uh, before COVID really hit, uh, or when it hit, sorry, it was um, just for Paddy's Day, if you remember. And I was two and a half weeks from that, I was due to um, flight to Nepal to take on the sixth mountain of my seven summits challenge, which was Mount Everest. So um, that was a big blow, not in terms of not getting to climb the mountain, but more in terms of what you forecast off the back of that. You know, I do a little bit of speaking and obviously, you know, I hoped that I would achieve what I wanted to achieve. I felt like I in my preparation, I put myself in a really, really, really good place to do that. And, um, you know, you, you kind of foresee things happening, <laughs> um, around the back end of adventures. If you, if you do happen to, um, like I said, um, succeed in what you're trying to succeed in. So that was a big blow. Like, cause I just didn't see that happening. Um, but, um, yeah, I, apart from that, like the, I suppose the forecast financial side of it, you know, I, I'm pretty good in terms of like the lockdown and all that. I, 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 I'm, I've wired myself over many years to just focus on what's within my control. And I really, 
don't let things um, bother me, or they just don't bother me otherwise. You know, if there's nothing I can do about it, I'm very good at just letting them slide and not focusing or concentrating or giving them any time. And, you know, and if I find they do, I just have a look at how, like, how I perceive that, you know, because my perception of it is the thing really that's bad is um, causing some sort of internal discomfort or di- sorry disturbance. So, um, so yeah, like I, I enjoyed obviously pretty good in my own company, as we'll probably talk about uh, from some adventures that I that I took on. So, you know, I quite enjoyed the time. Um, I was pretty well resourced where I'm living. I live in, in Canvara, so it was like only a kilometer from the sea so I was able to swim most days or just get in the water most days and then I had I had a setup at home where I was able to train as well so those two things were kind of covered you know they're two big outlets for me uh, in terms of physical and mental health and mental health and physical fitness um, so so yeah I was able to kind of just um, you know take that um opportunity there that was given to me to really concentrate on those things and, and try and um try and make some kind of gains or improvements or uh, you know just kind of get better at what i was um in in my preparation for future um travels and adventures and expeditions very good just that i suppose again i suppose just to i suppose um you know get into one thing you said there um, it's about really controlling the controllables. Um, I, I think that's a big thing you you do go by. Mm, hugely, like because it's the state that that concentration puts you into. You know, so when you focus, like when you make the choice to focus on something that's within your control, the effect that state has on your mind is kind of it depressurizes you, it depressurizes time, and it depressurizes the effect the state can have. Like so simply when you concentrate on something that you can't or have no control over there is an internal disturbance but when you do the opposite when you concentrate on something which is within your control um you have a um i call it a depressurizing or a a neutralizing effect on your state you know it just brings you back into a nice neutral state and and that's a nice place to be able to live in i suppose that took years to wire your mind to kind of accept that i wouldn't say accept that but you know to be mm. okay with that. because sometimes naturally we're brought up not to be okay with that you know you're always looking at other things um would you have any tips or any you know suggestions how people can start looking at things in in that perspective especially you now with lockdown you know we really have to control the controllables mm. Well, there's two um, keys, I would say, to that. The first one is you have to be aware of what you are concentrating on. And we are not most of the time because we're just, we're wired that way. We, we kind of, I call it like a first level thinking. We just, we, we stay in, we're not aware of the conversation that's going on in our heads. So that's why self-awareness is hugely important. So how do we improve that? Well, concentration is a great thing. And I always find whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter that you concentrated on it fully and you try and do it to the best of your ability. So that might be, you know, training or it actually could be as simple as washing the dishes. 
whatever you're doing, you concentrate on it doing and you concentrate on the actual function actually on, of doing it, be it cutting the grass, making the bed, washing the dishes or something much more extreme like where you're, you're training to be better and you're placing yourself into a state of stress. You know, that's what training is, right? Um, and hoping to adapt for it, but concentrating on what's within your control in that moment is much more difficult um, because of the stress and what that does to your mind through the, the physical discomfort, you know. But it's the same thing, it's the same process, it's just learning to concentrate and staying as present as possible. And the more you do that, the better you become at it. Because how do we get better at anything? Practice. So you have to practice, practice being present, and you do that through awareness and concentration. And I, where I suppose we're bringing back to the early days because I found it interesting how a certain you know period in your life um, definitely changed the tra- trajectory of your whole career and it got it, it basically linked up to where you are now today. It changed your whole mindset. Um, is back when you were seventeen and you were playing schools rugby. Do you want to give a brief insight into that? Because I do think it's very important, um, especially, you know, people, if they don't make it at 16, 17, they might just, you know, forget about it then. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It was, I mean, I, I often, well, sometimes I wonder, um, you know, what would happen in my life if, if kind of, I hadn't made this decision and it's as simple as that. I made a decision. Basically I wasn't um, getting any game time in my school's rugby team. Um, when I was in fifth year, I was in the Bish in Galway and then moving into sixth year. Um, I started to, I was like, I was enormous for my age. Like I'm talking 19 and a half stone, six foot five, like, but I was just, I, I couldn't move really. So I played, I played, I had a decent enough season, but I just, I wasn't fit. And I played um, one game of Connacht Schools and then I got dropped from the team. And um, it hurt me pretty bad. And I think, the, I can't remember the time of year anyway, but I remember just that the kind of, um, the hurt um, from the rejection of that Connacht Schools team just ignited some questions in me. And I just started asking myself, like, well, good questions, like, you know, well, what's up here? And clearly what the issue was is just I wasn't fit. I wasn't mobile enough. I wasn't getting around the pitch. I wasn't in the game enough. I wasn't having, you know, enough time on the ball and many enough actions. I was just, okay, I had a a few good carries in me um, for a game, but like that wasn't going to last um, or it wasn't consistent. So anyway, I decided to just get fit. Uh, and I, I was 17. It's not like it is now where, you know, a 17-year-old has access to reams of incredible information at the tip of their fingers. You know, I didn't know anything. And it wasn't there. Like, well, I, was, I was going to probably, this was 97, so <laughs> I was going to what, take out the Encyclopedia Britannica or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, all I knew was, like, from what I'd done throughout the underage teams in Goegians, uh, which was my club, or is my club, and that was just run laps. Like, so I basically went up one night, you scope, I, like, I made, made the decision. I'm going to go up to Go Agents tomorrow night and I'm going to run as many laps as I can. And I basically, first night lasted two and a half laps, but I went back the next night and I got an extra lap. And the next night, and I basically 30 nights straight, I was up there. And by the end of it, I was like doing 20 something plus laps, you know. 
So um, very basic, um, but it worked. And it was in, you know, in that month where whatever ignited me, like, you know, the, was it the pain of thinking where I was, you know, the, you know, of ans- the answers to the questions I'd ask myself, like, you know, what's going to happen if you don't get fit? You know, all I knew, all I loved, my passion was rugby. So, so um, in the, during those 30 nights or days and or, yeah, nights and all those kind of laps of that pitch, you know, I just kind of, um, I started and discovered a kind of pros, um, an association that still is my default today. You know, it's about hard work and the rewards from persevering through the hard work. So the action is the hard work and the rewards are, you know, basically the rewards for me were two years after that April where I did all those nights of laps, I signed my first professional rugby contract, you know. So that was a long way to come in two years. It was just a case of putting the kind of grind. Well, that's, uh, that, that's amazing. You know, you, you, obviously things started to improve with the the months after that though did it Mm. did you start getting more game time and things yeah exactly like so basically i had the attributes you know i was because i was big um and there wasn't a whole lot of you know uh, as a country we're kind of we don't have a whole lot of big guys walking around you know so i was enormous for my age i had skill i had a bit of skill anyway and i was aggressive i just wasn't fit so um it was just adding in that element improving on a huge weakness um and it just it helped all areas of my game you know so it was just kind of doubling down on that and then they, like you said the next season started um i started playing a bit of senior rugby i think if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, I did. And then we had a great coach come into Goegians. Very lucky at the same time to have this guy in my life, a guy called John Kingston, who um, he had been actually coaching professionally in the UK. And the, the club was Richmond in London. And Richmond had folded kind of in early professionalism because of the, I suppose, financial demands. And he felt very disillusioned with the game. So for whatever reason, I don't know what the connection was. He decided to come to the west of Ireland to live. Well, we I think we'd both agree that's a good decision. Yeah. Um, but after that, then he, you know, he 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 ended up in Goegians, and I just happened to be eighteen, and he just kind of pulled me in by the scruff of my neck. And I had, you know, like I said, about two amazing seasons under him, where he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me, and you know, demanded more of me and everything I gave. He demanded more and more and more, and and you know, got a hell of a lot out of me, and I ended up sign up for Connacht then after that do you want to give us just a, a brief overview then of say your your career um after that your, your rugby mm. career so yeah like I said um signed for Connacht around 2000 and then played there for four seasons um that was kind of the early days when I first started there was no Celtic league and then the very start it was just interpros and a bit of European rugby and then the Celtic League formed somewhere in the middle of that and then um, 2004 I left there and signed for Northampton Saints in the UK played there for um, four great years uh, well three great years and one shitty year at the end where I was basically injured for the whole thing I had a couple of um, distal bicep tendon tears one after another just freakish stuff um, 
So I missed my last season there and then I was pretty kind of fed up with, um, I suppose, that, the whole been injured. And it was a tough year for me outside of rugby as well. So I um, had an opportunity to move to France and I always wanted to play in the French League. You know, we, we would have played a few games over there a year in European competitions. So, um, so this opportunity came up to move to a place called Brive la Gaillard, which is in the kind of center of France. Um, small town, 70,000 people, I mean, and, you know, 20,000 of them are at the games every Saturday. Um, it's a real, real rugby town. Um, and rugby in France is very similar to GEA here, where, like, every small village has a rugby club. It's real, real patchwork of the, the culture and the community, you know. So, um so yeah, I had a great experience playing out there for three years. Loved kind of living in France. Loved um, life outside of rugby, and you know the rugby, the the league itself is very rich. Um, you know, the it's a lot of history there. Like there's a hundred plus years of history of some of those clubs playing against each other. So um, with that brings great kind of color and emotion and um, tradition and history and culture to the the matches. You know, so that's. That's a really great experience traveling around France, seeing all the different corners of it and, and seeing, you know, and experiencing games in different parts, like in winter in the mountains or summer on the Med or whatever, and playing games in those conditions, like where the, the temperature could be like 50 degrees either way, you know, it's it's a pretty cool place to play. Um, and then another great opportunity arose to come back to Ireland to play for Leinster. Um, so I, I came back in 2011 and very, very privileged to be part of a, an amazing squad of players and an amazing group with coaches, S&C staff. Just, just so lucky to um, have gotten to experience that. Like That was the first time I really felt at home, like I felt I'd found a group that aligned with what I was about or I aligned with what they were about more than you know more than anything they were just all everyone was there to get better trying to you know um trying to be a better rugby player a better version of themselves every day really great coaching really good um culture in terms of uh, strength and conditioning in terms of medical just really great people um personally I had a kind of tough couple of years with injuries while I was there. I only ended up playing about 30 games in two years because I had shoulder issues, uh, which ended with, um, I had a complete shoulder reconstruction in the, um, the start of my second season. Um, happened in a Heineken Cup game in the Aviva and I never played for them again unfortunately and and that was the one club of all I've played for five different clubs and that was the one I would have just happily retired at you know I would have stayed there the other ones I all moved off my own volition but this one was like Leinster was just it was just I, I loved it there you know I loved the the attitude and the mindset and you know um been surrounded by that and what that brought out of you you know you, you felt younger nearly as a as a person um you know it, it was it was uplifting rather than other other clubs I played at where it was quite um you know you'd feel older <laughs> by the end of it uh, and then the last I moved um with my shoulder still in a sling I moved back out to France to a club called Oyana 
who had just been uh, promoted to the top 14, which is the top league in France. And they took a chance on me because I was injured. But um, yeah, I played two years out there and then I ended up retiring in 2015. And that point in, in your life, um, you know, you're obviously met with big void. Um, how did you adjust to it? Uh, and I suppose especially going from training in a unit as a team to training on your own? Mm. You know, I was pretty ready to close the chapter. I really felt like I'd given rugby Everton. I was absolutely physically battered by the end of it. I mean, it was it was at a point where, you know, I'd play a game on a Saturday and I probably wouldn't be able to train on the pitch and kind of jump in lineouts till a Wednesday. And, you know, they'd be counting my jumps because they didn't want you doing any more than whatever 10 jumps um because just the the you know the it's just a it's a it's just a they call it a boucherie in france it's like an abattoir it just eats you up and spits you out the demands of training every day and the games and just how physical they became like you know so so they're just trying to manage my load and that was a very kind of crude way of doing it but like i was um I was lucky enough that I, I did have a good coach, um, a French coach at that stage, a guy called Christovorios, and um, he was a bit more, um, what would you say, innovative and progressive rather than your standard French coach who's quite old school. So um, I was getting decently looked after. I probably My career probably would have been a, cut a, a year short even um, earlier if it wasn't for Christophe and a guy called Joel Ab. So so that was good. But like at the same time, I was just drained as well. I was just, it had been 15 years and um, I was kind of, I was ready to move on. I, I did actually end up f- finishing injured, but I probably would have retired anyway. There was a question, would I go for another year or not? But, you know, I, I kind of was ready to close that chapter and I did have things I wanted to do like in, you know, personal ambitions outside of a team sport, like certain challenges and adventures. Um, so uh, I did walk away pretty content, a bit frustrated by the 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 um, how it ended in you know finishing injured and everything that went in around that with the rugby club and that. But at the same time, pretty good, pretty happy to move on and start um, uh, open up a new chapter. Now, all that being said, um, this is a difficult part, um, even for somebody who, like, you know, had something very purposeful he wanted to go into. There was still times where I was kind of, um, you know, pulled back. I'm talking mentally here now, pulled back into the comfort of... um, what I knew, you know, I knew rugby and, and the, the thing you'll see guys do is in any sport is they'll stick in around the sport in some way. They'll get into coaching. They'll actually retrain as physios and they'll sooner or later they'll be back in the club or they'll come. I don't know. I've seen guys become agents. I've seen guys become uh, strength conditioning staff, you know, everything. Nothing wrong with that. It just wasn't for me, but I saw my mind, um, um, kind of cert like, almost what's the word just um kind of innately been pulled back into that kind of you know the comfort of um the rugby club and the safety of it you know and what you know um 
So that was difficult, you know, to deal with. And it was just coming back to a point I made earlier, just having the self-awareness to kind of witness my mind doing that and know know why it was doing that and kind of been able to kind of push by it with um, the emotion attached to what I wanted to try and achieve. And why did you go down the route, we say, of, you know, adventures and not perhaps, you know, as you said earlier on, um, you know, retraining as, as something in, in, in the sport again. Um, mm. What attracted you, you to it? I, I'm led to believe you did a lot of other, we say, uh, events before you retired. So I suppose it was probably a natural transition. A little bit. It, it was just, I, I just knew that I wanted to do certain things you know I, I I've always been very um self-driven and self-regulated even in team sports you know I I, I always I, I got a huge amount out of kind of pushing my body and pushing my mind in my own training um and in rugby training kind of um formats or sessions um and I, I kind of picked up things over the years, I was always searching out, you know, reading and, um, you know, f- trying to like, whatever it may be, trying to figure out how I could become a better player, rugby player. And, you know, I, I picked up a few books over the years. And one of those was a book called The Crossing by um, two guys, two British guys, um, James Crackman and Ben Fogel, who wrote The Atlantic. Um, and the other one was, I watched a documentary on um, three brothers, actually, from Galway here called the O'Donovan brothers, who ran uh, the Mountain de Sable in um, a very early days, like in, you know, the 2000, 2002, something like that. And, you know, just seeing those things during my rugby career, I was like, I want to do those at some point in my life. They're very much appealing to me, like they appeal on a very kind of, I suppose, profound level, like, you know, there's something that's nearly, um, I can't even articulate why, you know, there's just something that wants me to kind of um, to do to, to pulls me towards those big things, you know, and it's, it's kind of everything about them appeals, like even the hardship, the extremes, the challenge, the adventure, like that's just very authentically kind of, um, attractive inside me, so that's so that's why I kind of I just knew I wanted to do them. I did not know or did not think that I would try and make a career out of it in some way. I just knew that you know I've got this very short window, you know whatever it may be, and there's some day that they're going to close the coffin, um, and those are things I want to have done. So I'm just going to go and do them now, you know. And just um. Like, you know, I suppose what attracted you to uh, the rowing? Because um, I, I know by the training you're doing, I see on, on Instagram, um, and obviously that linked into the solo Atlantic row. But I think you always liked rowing, did you? And a lot of people hate the, the rowing machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a love-hate relationship, I think, is fair to say. Um, I do, like, I mean, I, I just think it's the most incredible, that machine in particular, the, you know, the, the ergometer is just, it's the most incredible machine for building, like, uh, mental strength because um, uh, it just, it gives you this instant feedback on your effort. Um, and if you're striving for more, what you'll realize is that, like, there's a lot of things that are, um, that will kind of show up in our minds mentally first 
uh, to stop us pushing through that effort. But if you can get past them, um, you'll realize that no matter, well, generally no matter the stress you will be able to actually produce more output and the rower is kind of one of the only machines you can do that so it kind of it, it that's one of those things that would have helped me retrain a lot of my thinking you know and been able to control um the controllables and control only what's in my control um but I, I first kind of came across it in northampton um we used to do a lot of uh, rowing for our off-feed conditioning especially the bigger guys the front five guys you know instead of the pounding on our joints because of our weight and size you know they tried to look at different ways to to get some conditioning and we used to do some at the time i knew what i used find and experience as brutal sessions on there like um, a lot of 500 meter intervals like flat out 500 meter intervals. so you're talking about working for about 80 to 90 seconds um so power endurance stuff that kicks up a lot of lactic acid you know so they'd be proper horrible we actually used to do our fitness test as well on it um you know some clubs do all sorts of different you know mostly running but we used to actually in the years i was there to use test on the roam machine and you'd see guys break on it like that is one thing it's a machine that can break the hardiest soul so um i don't know i i it was just it was obvious to me i remember the session exactly one of the lads so when we it was during the summer, so sometimes you train, you bring the ergs outside and train outside the stadium or below the gym outside. And um, the ergs would be hopping off the ground from the power some guys would be putting through them. So we'd get guys to hold down the ergs. And um, one of the lads, a guy called Luke Harbert, who'd done a bit of rowing, said to me after I'd done a couple of, he's like, you're in the wrong sport. <laughs> he said, you should be rowing. And it always stuck with me a little bit. And I, you know, over the years then, that was like early enough in my career. But I'd always, that'd be one of the machines I'd always go to for all those reasons um, I kind of just um, mentioned. That'd be the machine I'd go to just when I'd be doing my own training that I ended up buying one when I was in Oyana, I think, and uh, just I have it in my garage and I'd just be training on it. And I always had this idea that I would um, compete, you know, try and keep those competitive juices uh, flowing after rugby that like, I think i for me anyway definitely deserve airing regularly so um so i do i compete on them now even to this day um you know there's there's indoor rowing competitions all over the world but um i've just competed here in ireland and yeah it's it's something i love it's something that really pushes me to my limits you know i i always say um a two like the 2k row is possibly it's for me, anyway, mentally, it's the hardest thing you can do. It's just, it's six minutes of absolute chaos, internal chaos and doubt and pain. And it's trying to overcome that for six minutes is a long time to spend in that place. And um, yeah, it's just when you come off it, you're just on a different planet with the endorphins from getting through that. Brilliant, brilliant. It's, uh, that's, that's really interesting how, you know, you, you use that, and you are you have used that all your career and even will going forward to you know really cement your mind um mm. i think that's something that a lot of people you know they, they probably watch these things on youtube and all that but I, I don't think you can really train your mind until you're in those states you know like mm. you know, when your body's under serious pressure because mm. like you said we're, we're easy to or we're programmed to always go for the easy option that's um, right and just one thing I actually came across I found interesting that you set a you set a record in Linster at the time rowing did you? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, we had this um we had this great culture there that I talked about and it was very obviously um competitive and what they did to kind of accentuate that um attitude was they you know there was a kind of unwritten it wasn't really unwritten. I was going to say it was an unwritten rule, but it was more just in the culture that like people would actually come in on their days off and train pretty hard, you know, and I, I was one of those guys. and I loved that. Yeah, you know, every if Wednesdays were normally a day off for us uh, with a game on a Saturday and I'd be in training and the coaches or the SNC coaches, what they did to kind of, you know, use that attitude to get more out of players as they kind of put up all these different kind of targets or different sessions and then um around the gym you know so to be one beside the watt bikes to be one beside the rowers to be one beside the treadmills or whatever um or two or three and then there'd be a list and then you just mark your name down and whatever score you got or whatever time you got and there was a at the time there was a great um uh, a very simple but an incredibly brutal test called rowing golf which is it's simply 10 reps of one minute on one minute off and you um you get as many you try and row as many meters as possible in your one minute of work and then you get 60 seconds off so last 20 minutes and then at the end of each um effort there's a you get a score based on the amount of meters you've rowed um and at the time um was meeting a guy called tom denton who was also a second row and we were kind of going hell for leather for the squad record um and i i had it tom had it and then i broke it back i think uh and as far as i know it still stands actually it's still up on the wall i don't know if they still do it or but um i believe the record is still there and you you broke it yourself since a few times have you I have, yeah. No, I've smashed it since that myself. Yeah, I've I've done a lot more uh, rowing training, and when since then, and when um, when your body isn't getting the shit kicked out of it every week, it's a lot easier to make improvements and, and kind of properly kind of um, push on, you know, and develop and progress in in targets like that. And um, we'll just go on to the Marathon de Sablo. Sablo? Pronunciation is all wrong. <laughs> but uh, in, uh, in April 2016, uh, you did that. Um, just for people that aren't aware of it, what exactly is it? And how did you go about getting ready for it? Yeah, so the Mountain de Sable is... Um it's an ultra marathon over six days across the Sahara Desert, self-supported. Um, it's in it's an annual event, a bit of a cult kind of um, ultra marathon event. Um, it's about thirty six or seven years old now. Actually, um, it first started with a guy called Patrick Bauer, and he's still the race organizer. And it's it's really popular. Like, well, it's about, it gets about a thousand entries every year from all around the world and happens in the Moroccan Sahara. So six marathons, basically over six days, self-supported. So that means that you, from the start, uh, on your back, you carry everything you need for the full six days. So um, all your food, cooking utensils, clothing, um, bedding, um, you know, even down to the the, the race itself gives out this mandatory list of things that you have to bring. And one of them is um, a scorpion kit bite, scorpion bite kit. 
you know, so the, not that the, basically the wrapper didn't get taken off mine, but it was in the bag anyway. Um, the only thing you get given every day is um, salt tablets and water. So uh, at every checkpoint throughout the day, you know, it's really well, really, really well run event. So you pass through these kind of gates and there's a doctor at every one of them kind of overseeing. And then there's people handing out water and you get water, obviously, at the start of each um, uh, race, uh, sorry, start of each day as well. So um, that's the only thing you don't have to worry about um, bringing with you. But everything else has to be um, on your back from start to finish. Um, yeah, great event. Uh, I kind of, I, I did it about a year after I finished playing rugby. And like I said, I finished with a, a knee injury. So I wasn't too sure. I started training for the Mountain de Sable about seven months before the start. But at the same time, I hadn't run in the preceding kind of year without pain. So, and I hadn't even attempted to run in the five months since I'd retired. I'd just gone traveling and I climbed a couple of mountains and uh, just lost a bit of weight and just let my body kind of decompress um, and give it some space and some, um, you know, time post rugby. So like the first time I run, uh, first time I ran um, in my official Marathon de Sable training uh, regime was like little I was actually up in the local GA pitch here in in Renmore and I just ran out to the um 25 meter line and back uh sorry ran out jogged out and then walked back and just did that repeatedly just to see how my knee was I have because I've very little cartilage in either knees so it was just and that was the thing that was stopping me coming back in rugby was the pain from running you know just pounding on them so um and it felt okay so that was first step first thing done great and then it was just a, a progression from there i just progressed up in my um uh in how i ran um and how far i ran and what sort of intensity i ran and then i i would have i done a very kind of personal um training program because you know, I wasn't training to I wasn't training to win the mountain this time. I was only training to complete it. And um, because I'm big, I'm not built like an ultra runner. And because of my profile from rugby, you know, if I'd gone down the classic ultra marathon um, uh, program or training guide, I I mean, I would have destroyed me inside of weeks. I would have so many overuse injuries and just. You know, I, I would chronic everything would have flared up, hips, knees, lower back. I just I wouldn't I wouldn't I mean the idea with these things is to get to the start line in peak condition, not absolutely fucking ruined like so. So basically I just set out my own program and it was very personal to me, you know. So I did a lot of off heat conditioning and it was only once every nine days or so I actually ran. And then that type of running then was very was a type of running that well, firstly, that would serve me, but secondly, one that I could do sustainably and it didn't have damaging effects. So basically, I did a lot of interval training because I, I run much more smoothly at that pace. You know, um, with, you know, I find when I, if I was to go for a long run now, like I just, it really, it doesn't serve me in any way. Like I'm just beating up my body, beating up my joints. But if I go and I do the same distance or whatever, a quarter of the distance at a much better clip, a much higher clip, a much more kind of smoother clip for me, um, that works well. And I actually do progress in my training. I get better. So that's what I did. I did a lot of my volume um, through uh, interval training and um, 
you know, to, to the extent actually that I was competing in a 257 kilometer ultramarathon, but the longest I ran in my preparation um, without stopping was two kilometers. So <laughs> very, uh, very different to the classic training. But, you know, um, with everything aligned between my uh, goals and, um, you know, my profile, it was, it was just the right thing to do for me, you know. Um, obviously, if you were going to finish in, your aim was to finish in the top 100 or top 50, or you'd have to train very differently even, you know. But it, it, it worked, it suited me and it worked well for me at the time. And how did you prepare for the the heat? How could you prepare for the? Or did you just mentally prepare? Yeah, I I don't really hugely believe in uh, trying to recreate um, the the adventure or the challenge. You know, I I more believe in training the body and the mind for peak performance. So I had. To a certain extent, I'd spent five pre-seasons in France um, training, and it gets fucking hot in places like Brive <laughs> and Oyana. Like, you know, during pre-season, which is a pretty horrible part of the year, you know, two months of slog, you know, two months of really pushing, been pushed and pushing yourself. So I I'd, I'd kind of I'd had a bit of um, a window to kind of 35 to 40 degree heat in that sort of stuff. So... I had a bit of acclimatization there and it didn't really worry me like because I knew I reacted pretty well to to heat you know I my first year going out to France I had a huge that was a huge concern I was like fuck me like pre-season's hard enough never mind 35 degree heat but once I got through it I was like oh do you know I wasn't too bad the heat really didn't bother me so that's kind of the attitude I went into the Mountain de Sable with as well as like I'm not not really concerned too much about the heat i'm just concerned about you know i'd be concerned about things like my feet and the kind of upkeep of them and how i'm going to manage you know things that would actually i actually felt would stop me and then it was just about keeping on top of um salt tablets and hydration hydration like it was like for example at the at the um when you come into those gates that I talked about at the at the checkpoints during um, the races or the days um, uh, stage, there was you were given new water. So what people used to do was, you know, they'd have a kind of quarter of a bottle and they'd throw it in the bin and then they'd keep the new bottle they were given or the two new bottles and they'd move on. I'd search through those bins every time I came through and find like the quarters and I'd, I'd drink them down because I knew I needed more hydration than most because it was bigger. Um, so like stuff like that, I was just very conscious of like, well, hydration is really important here, you know, in the heat. So, and the salt tablets, make sure you're taking them, but also, you know, if you can get a bit extra or if people are like just dumping it away, I mean, take it. <laughs> Yeah, true, definitely. <laughs> because uh, um, it just—I suppose one thing I'd like to get insight into, and this kind of feeds into the the solo Atlantic row as well. How do you, you know, deal with those doubts or negative thoughts that would have came into your mind? Um, like naturally, they come into everyone's mind when you're in, you know, when your body is under that much pressure. Mm. How did you get rid of it? or get rid of them. That's right. It is. It is. It's. I mean. That's exactly what it is. It's just it's a natural reaction to stress, right? That um, your mind will go into that place. So, kind of, 
it's it's down to practice, you know. So you have to have lived through those moments, and you have to have learned to find a way through them. And it's not a perfect fight. Like I can talk to you here now about certain processes and all that, but like if it's not important enough to you, you won't get through it. You'll find a way out. It's just you, your mind is too sneaky, too conniving, and it will keep. Um, introducing these alluring excuses or justifications or um concentrations that just put you in weak place and sooner or later you'll break but if you are if what you're doing um whenever this stress is imposed on you if that is important enough this self-doubt or you know negativity or self um, negative self-talk or it might be it could be absolute chaos in your mind you might be able to concentrate on that. and if what you're doing is important enough to you you will find a way through it and and i have i suppose over time i've just kind of figured out um how I do that as a person because everything I try most things I try and go after are very important to me that's why I'm doing them you know so um, it's just it kind of comes back to what I talked about at the start it's just been firstly very aware of that what your mind is doing if it is in chaos having put yourself into that place in training and kind of learn to get past it by concentrating on what, what, what is within your control. And, you know, I, I, I kind of have this method I've developed called the four controllables and, and they are four uh, things I can concentrate on that are within my control that always bring me back to this present moment, no matter what state I am in. Like, even if it is a state of extreme self-doubt or um, a state of negativity or a state of um, darkness or, you know, uh, discomfort or whatever. So um, the first one of them is always position and technique. So the position, body position of whatever you're doing, be it running, be it rowing, be it climbing, be it, um, walking uh and then the technique of that so what does perfect technique look like and what do i need to do with my body to get it into that perfect technique um the second one of them is effort so effort is always within your control uh and if when if and when you bring your awareness to um, a body part that is producing force or producing effort you can always um sorry that brings you back into the present moment you know that concentration uh third one is breath again breath is always within your control so it's just um having the awareness of what it's doing and then being able to change it or just concentrate on it again brings you back to the present moment and and the last one is self-talk um so what are you saying to yourself what um You've probably heard the term, what wolf are you feeding? Like are you feeding the, you know, um, the negative side or are you feeding the positive side? Um, and then I have in an, in, in that method or process, there's ways to, um, um, or there's steps to, um, bring your awareness there and then bring your concentration. So it's just all about being pre kind of training, whatever you're going into having a pre-awareness around some of these, um, the four controllables, which ones you might have to use, uh, and then having cues or questionings around that. So sort of a sentence that cues your mind uh, into the process quicker or a question, you know, if we think about breath, um, the third controllable, asking yourself, well, what is my breathing doing in, in remember now we're talking about straight states of, extreme stress so what is my breathing doing can i calm it at just the tiniest bit uh, asking yourself these questions is it nasal is it mouth can i 
bring it to a nasal mouth and then eventually nasal nasal like when you're in your rest periods or whatever and you know having lived through those processes or sorry having lived through those moments and practiced those processes when they do happen for whatever reason during a you know a, a run or the mar- the Martin de Sable or rowing the Atlantic you're just you're just better prepared to employ them and and use them just on we we we'll go on to the the next uh the next point now because those would definitely um you know lead into the the solo Atlantic row. Do you want to give us an overview of, of obviously obviously you 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 know it's a solo Atlantic row, but how did you become aware of it and is it a competition? Just give a, a brief overview of it and maybe we can delve sure. into it. Yeah, so it is. It's a race, actually. Um, I first discovered it, uh, that book I talked about, Cracknell and Fogel. Um, 2005, they did the race, and uh, I read the book. It was called The Crossing, and kind of knew there and then that I would do it someday. At that stage, I thought I would do it like... So it's a race, and um, it's full of boats from all the way from solos to... There's pair boats, there's three-man boats, there's four-man boats, and there's five-man boats. So when I first discovered it, I thought I would do it as a kind of, I don't know, just naturally my mind went to doing it as a a four-man boat. But excuse me, Um, as time went by and I got further into my rugby career, I realized that it was something I would, you know, I, I, I... I felt I, I knew what a good teammate was. I felt I knew how to be a good teammate and how to sacrifice to be a good teammate. So I, um, I don't know, I was just drawn to more of the solo thing and, and leading myself into something very daunting and scary. So I went, I, you know, I kind of morphed, my thinking morphed into more doing it as a solo. And uh, the year I took it on, there was 25 boats in the race and the race goes from, it's called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. It goes from the Canary Islands across to the Caribbean. So um, La Gomera, it's one of the smallest Canary Islands, all the way to Antigua. It's about uh, 4,800 kilometers or so um, on a basically a little 7-meter, 23-foot ocean rowing boat, um, which has everything you need to survive. So you're completely self-supported or unsupported, sorry. So like all your food, everything on there, like there's, once you leave the docks, you don't see, there's no, there's no support. You don't see anybody, um, until you get to the other side, apart from if you come across some marine traffic or whatever. And like when I heard about this, there's a load of questions I had for you. Like, so this is the, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is a very good opportunity. Um, food wise, like how did you pack all the food into it? Like what was your a typical day food wise? So um, the race has a load of kind of compliance rules, um, and for a solo rower, you have to bring ninety days worth of food. So, um, and twenty percent of that has to be wet rations. What they are basically are, is food that you can eat no matter if you don't have any electricity on the boat. Like so, we we ha- I had solar panels on the boat that fed into a couple of batteries. So I was able to, you know, keep things like my GPS running, my water maker. Um, but if that fails, which, you know, some stuff does happen like that. They do fail. Uh, you have to have wet, certain wet rations so you can eat something, you know, and then the other 80% of the food is all dehydrated um, or freeze dried food. So uh, basically food in a package that you just add boiling water to and let it rehydrate. Um, so at about every day I had six and a half thousand calories, 
um, to eat. And that was made up of about three and a half thousand calories of food like that, freeze dried or frozen um, or dehydrated, excuse me. And um, 3000 of snacks, 3000 calories of snacks. And those snacks would be um, basically protein powder, carbohydrate powders, um, uh, biltong, nuts, seeds, sweets, chocolate, um, nut butters, MCT oil, basically stuff that was like highly calorie dense, but also um, nutrient dense, you know, and then with some kind of simple sugars thrown in there, like chocolate or Haribo or whatever, you know, and little treats as well. Of course, you want to, you're not going, you know, you're not, you're, you're going through enough punishment out there. So you don't want to punish yourself with your food as well. Like it's such a, it's such a morale boost when you pull out a packet so I would have I would have separated them into days then, so day one to day ninety, uh, and they would have tried to bring a good mixture, a kind of variety of stuff. So when you pull out a packet and you really like the the meals and you obviously the the snacks were kind of the same every day, but um, you know it it just lifts your spirits like you know. So anything you can do to lift your spirits a little bit out there is really important. And they just give us a, an insight as to what it was like, you know, you know, some people give out that it's, you know, it's tough enough being in a car with one another for five hours, or even, <laughs> even, even on their own, you know, for five hours, if they're driving from, you know, from Kerry to Dublin or whatever the case may be. Mm. How did you deal with it? You know, it was complete silence. All you had is basically yourself and your mind. Mm. You know, there was times where I wished it was a switch, turn it off. Like, I was just, because I was doing my own fucking head in, like, you know, but um, we don't have that luxury, right? <laughs> um, so I, I realized there was a cup. like, I, so firstly, what I would say is, like, you would not go there if you were not comfortable in your own head, you know, with your with your own presence. Like, I mean, you'd just be, you'd just be, I don't know, <laughs> just would not be a good idea. So firstly, that's one thing I am pretty comfortable in my own uh, company. But um, after that, then, though, it's a hell of amount of time to spend on your own. Um, and I had, it was like, it was a roller coaster in many ways, physically, okay, mentally, yes, emotionally, it was a roller coaster. So I, I, I was aware that it would be, and I tried to bring some things that would help with that, you know, as, as much as I wanted it to be um, as hard as it could be, I still, you still want to kind of um, try and manage some of those um, stresses or some of those kind of, you know, things that are, are going to um, push you into negative places. So first thing was um, music and audiobooks. you know, so I did, you know, to, to, to have something else for your mind to kind of concentrate on. So I did bring both of those. Um, I had the enormous um, blow on day four of putting on my first audiobook after spending about 400 euros on audiobooks the week before. Uh, I'd never listened to an audiobook, but this was my opportunity, right? Um, so I bought a load of them thinking, you know, this would be great. You know, they'll, you know, pass the time while you're on or whatever. And I, there's a speaker system on the boat, but I realized my heart dropped when I put the first one on and realized you couldn't hear the narrator over the wind. <laughs> and it's, oh, <laughs> it's, it's never not windy out there. Like, I mean, every minute of every day, the wind is howling. So, so that was, un <laughs> that was, that was a bit of a blow. And then, um, now I still had music and you could hear the music, uh, thankfully. So, um, so music, 
kind of was a big part of things. Well, not a big part, but it was a, it was a nice kind of luxury to turn on every now and again up until about day 40 where I started to have issues with my phone and charging it. And, and you know, I had to be very careful then. So that luxury kind of was gone then after that. Um, what I noticed myself doing then, uh, and it kind of, it's kind of more on reflection, is that I actually used to sing <laughs> to get out of my own head. And I would sing about nothing. Like, I mean, I would just sing about what I was seeing, you know, just to get words out of my head or to talk or to vent. Um, so I, I just kind of, whatever I was looking at, I'd be just singing about it. There'd be no rhyme, there'd be no tune. There'd be, it'd be absolutely like, I mean, it'd, it'd be torture for someone to listen to, but it was, it was good to get me out of my own head. Um, and a couple of things that were really important was the sat phone and, um, so having access to text messages or having a phone call every three or four nights with my parents or my brother or family or our friends, uh, that was really important. You know, that was a big boost. And I used to put it on about, I take a break between seven and eight o'clock. Um, and I used to put it on, um, turn it on. And then you'd hear the, you know, you'd, the messages coming in, the little text messages. And, you know, you'd be really looking forward to to reading them and the the last thing was a thing called um so i i ended up um i i brought a thing called the began which is a broadband uplink uh, satellite uplink uh, device um and that was going to permit me to send videos back to a friend of mine who was going to put them on social media so people could follow the race so that was the thinking behind that but what that actually meant or sorry so the process behind that is actually taking a video every day and talking into your phone what i realized kind of i don't know maybe a couple of weeks into the expedition is that like that was a really important part of my day is just sitting down and talking into my phone and like it was just a it was cathartic you know just to vent up some of the things i'd been going through and you know just tried to be as honest as I could and as authentic as I could in those um, videos, but it was serving me as well as helping, you know, people getting to follow along, you know, it was really serving me to actually just kind of blurt some stuff out because I was, you know, not having somebody around to talk to or to, you know, to even try and instigate a conversation around. So that was, that was, yeah, that was a big kind of part of it. And how do you prepare for it? Um, you know you're kind of going into the unknown like how did you get yourself in physical and mental shape and to deal with unexpected events which we'll uh we'll delve into in a minute um so uh, a lot of my so physically i took about 19 months to train for it you know um now you you could take less or um you know, you, you might do a different type of training or you might feel because it's a very kind of um, it's a very low level kind of slog endurance. You know, you might feel that um, training could be of less intensity, but I don't really believe in that. You know, whatever to serve me and my training is all around, you know, high intensity work and pushing my body and my mind into those places and learning to deal with those stressors of what those moments throw up, you know. So I'm a huge believer in that. So I, I spent 19 months properly, you know, trying to um, get in absolute peak 
condition. So as kind of strong as I could be, as fit as I could be, as mentally prepared as I could be. So that was the whole um, physical side of it. And then the mental side, okay, a big component to that is in my physical preparation. But there was also external things that I brought in, you know, so like um, I did some strong visualization or did some visualization stuff. It it worked out to be very good for me and important for me. Um, And I would have done some um, like affirmations, you know, so um, basically they're kind of um, sentence positive sentences you say to yourself to kind of reprogram your subconscious mind and something I found very mostly from the Atlantic Row something I found very um, beneficial you know and uh, these type of compliments to your mental training are things I would have loved to have had um, in uh, when I was playing rugby you know I Okay, I probably did a bit of visualization quite organically, but I would love to have had a process around it um, because I've seen and I've um, experienced the benefits of it um, subsequently in adventures. And I, I kind of feel like I missed a trick there with, uh, with, from my rugby career. And one thing I came across, and I, maybe it was, it was un, untrue, but was it true that you couldn't, um, you couldn't swim for the... <laughs> is, is there any yeah, truth no. That? Oh, yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Oh, my God. When I say, no, you know, I suppose the truth is I can't swim. Like, I could swim probably, I'm going to say about 20 meters, and then I'd sink, like, I mean, properly. Like, I, I don't have any buoyancy. Like, so, um, yeah, like, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm uncomfortable as well in the water as well. I, I don't, you know, because I, as far as I, my head says to me anyway, you, you know, you're not a good swimmer, you can't swim. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I wasn't totally, like, I wasn't, I wouldn't have been totally, if I'd fallen in the water, it wouldn't have just, I could have swam for a little bit, but not, not very long at all. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it, the chances of you falling in the water are, sorry, if you're going to fall in the water, it's going to be on a bad day, like a, a big kind of, you're going to get hit by a wave and, you know, you're going to be thrown over the side of the boat or it's not going to be on a calm day. So on a calm day, you could probably, you could catch the boat if you were separated from it, but on a wild day or an, on a day with any sort of movement in the water, you go one way and the boat goes the other. Like you're just, it doesn't matter if you're Michael Phelps, you're not catching that boat, you know, it's just, it's gone. Like, so, um, so it's not, yeah, it's not like, you know, it's not not that important that you can't swim. That's what I'm trying to say. I just know because I, I I can't swim either, and I just found it amazing that you know you undertook this massive <laughs> event in the ocean, and you you know that'd be a big obviously that'd be a big fear of mine if I was doing it. I wouldn't be able to swim. Mm. What, what would happen? How do you deal yeah. with that? That must I, be I, out. Yeah, I I dealt with it simply in, again, concentrating what's within my control. Well, what is within my control here that will make sure that I will never fall in that water? Or if I do, that there's never one um, point of contact with the boat. So it's just simply every day, no matter how calm it was, I wore a climbing harness around my waist. And from that harness, I clipped into the minute I stood outside the cabin or the split second I closed that cabin, I I clipped a line into a thing called the jack stay, which is another line that runs down the length of the boat. So I was, I always had, no matter what happened, if I was, um, the boat was capsized, I always had one point of contact with that boat, you know, so I was never separated from it because that's the real fear is the separation from the boat. You know, it's not falling in the water or getting in the water. It's actually the separation. Like a, 
if you are separated, you are fucked, basically. Well, I would have been fucked anyway. So it's just concentrating then on being unbelievably and diligent about doing that, you know. And of course, that's it's easier said than done, you know. You, you When you're tired and you're frustrated and you're just fed up, um, the easy thing to do is to not do that. To The, the lazy mind will kind of, it'll work its way in and you'll just, you, you'll get sloppy. Right. So it was just been unbelievably prepared mentally that like, I'm going to be really tired. I'm going to be fed up. I'm not going to want to do this or that, but you have to do it. It's just too important. So it was just visualizing that kind of sequence and process and, and that's position, that state of, you know, mental tiredness and, and still going through the thing that's most important, which is the clip into the boat. And just out of curiosity, um, God forbid if something did happen, how would have you know how would the race organisers become aware of it, or you know if if so if, if you did become separated from the boat and such? Yeah. So basically, there's all sorts of um, uh, devices that we carry uh, that they're on the boat, but they're also on your person. So on the boat, you have um, you obviously have your radio, which has an SOS. You also have a thing called an EPIRB, which is an emergency locating beacon, and then um, so you click that switch on either of those and it goes straight to a place called Falmouth in the UK, which is like, and they coordinate a rescue. So they send out the um, SOS call to the nearest, and by maritime law, the nearest um, vessel must um, assist in a rescue or uh, whatever it may be. But also on your life jacket, you have a thing called a PLB, which is like a miniature EPIRB, which is um, stands for Personal Locating Beacon. So if you do fall in, you've always got that attached. And again, it's just a flick of a switch. And the same thing goes to Falmouth in the UK, and, and they notify, um, yeah, like I said, the, the, the nearest um, um, vessel. And just out, out in the middle of the ocean, like, do you, what was the craziest thing you came across? Did you come across much ships crossing shipping lanes and, and stuff like that? Um, much. I did. I, I came across quite a few. Um, I had a yacht that was going across the Caribbean. So we use um, that route is called the trade winds route. So you, a lot of people um, go between the Canaries to sail that way because the winds and the currents are going. Uh, east to west so I had this beautiful like multi-million dollar or multi-million euro yacht swing by one day with um I was uh it was Christmas Eve actually so around day 11 or 12 so I, I suppose I was quite disheveled at that point um I was not expecting uh, a yacht with like 30 people having a Christmas party on it to come around and surf with me three times. <laughs> so that was one thing. Um, met loads, uh, quite a bit uh, marine traffic, but nothing really scary until right towards the end where um, one was coming right at me um, in a kind of in big sea condition. So like I, they wouldn't, I would not have been visible to them. Um, so, and they were only about three kilometers coming into two kilometers from me. So that was really kind of, yeah that was that was scary when i first realized that they were coming at me but i had other ones pass me like you know you know a mile two miles three miles but you can see you have um a uh, a little kind of map on your gps inside and you can see their bearing and your bearing and if you're going across and it was it was very rare that um my path and and, and a path of a big tanker was going across even though yeah but some of them were 
fucking enormous. Like you're talking 300 meters long and you're like this little seven meter ocean rowing boat. Um, and then loads of wildlife, uh, birds basically every day, even in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, I had sea turtle, had pods of dolphins one night, uh, and in the forties, I remember that was a real special kind of occasion. And then I had a whale, a whale one day, um, uh, swam I, like a little adolescent. It was not even as big as the boat, so but it was um, uh, like a, it was very kind of curious and playful. And swam around the boat like four or five times. Um, yeah, and at one point, like literally stuck its head up and made eye contact with me. So that was probably that. And sorry, that was an unbelievable experience. It was also this crazy experience one night of the the moon. Um, rising out of the horizon almost like the sun would you know but it was whatever eight o'clock in the evening um and i just saw on the horizon all i could see was uh those low-lying clouds but behind the clouds there was this orange kind of stripe and i was like what the fuck is that i was looking at it for ages and i was like that is bizarre it must be huge because it's like it was properly coming out of the horizon like i was like that what can that be uh, and then, uh, like, uh, you know, over the next kind of 10, 15 minutes, the clouds started to kind of break up a bit. And I just started to get this bigger glow. And I was like, what is that? And sooner or later, it just kind of all dispersed. And this massive fucking moon came out of nowhere, like glowing like the sun. And I was like, what is going on? Like, how is this happening? And I was just, the moon, the moon just was for me is just i don't know i couldn't make head and tails of it i was like this thing is just badass like it does whatever the fuck it wants like one day it's out you know the next day it's not then it's coming out the horizon like um uh, the sun uh i was like <laughs> i just i like there was no consistency to it i was trying to make head and tails of it and i just couldn't you know and that that day in particular i was like i that was absolutely insane thing to witness and I just got a question in um, from someone as well, and they, they wanted to put it to you. Did you ever come close to losing touch of reality on the Atlantic Row? And if so, can you describe? Um, you know, those... No, I, I, I don't think I ever came touch. Those er, in the early days, excuse me, I really struggled with the... Um, for some reason, I really struggled with the sleep and I, I don't even want to call it sleep deprivation because I was getting I felt I was getting you know enough sleep but I was oh, I had this real problem with kind of keeping my eyes open um and I, I just I, I couldn't figure it out didn't know what the problem was like I, I was kind of like seeing this kind of almost like a blurry vision for hours even though as much as I tried to focus it um, so that was that was one real thing that I found strange. Your mind does strange things to you out there as well. It just the stuff that comes into your minds is is bizarre. Like you know, I, I noticed um, you know these memories coming up that I didn't even think were memories. Like of people that I went to, like national school, early national school with, like, and then all of a sudden I'd remember their name and I didn't even think. You know, I, I was like, how, this is not in my consciousness. Like, I, I did not think I had this memory. I've never stumbled across it before, and now it's coming up, and I know this guy's name, and I mean, I'm like, what is that? I'm, I'm seeing them as a, you know, back in national school days and stuff like that. I found that very bizarre. Um, but I generally felt, 
because I was getting, so I lost my steering system on day 17, a complete steering system failure, which meant that I, I was very hard for me to row after it got dark because I used to have to be able to, when you're rowing without um, a steering system, you have to steer with the oars. So what that means is you have to put one oar into the water to kind of act as a full rudder to kind of steer the boat so you're always watching what you're always very um surveying what the waves are doing so where you're going to place the oar so if you don't place it very well onto the wave uh, you kind of get ends up kind of ricocheting down into your ribs or into your quad or something so that meant that like at night you can't see like if there's no moonlight which there often wasn't you can't see or if it's very cloudy you can't see what the waves are doing so you can't see where you're going to place your oars and you know you guess you and you get it right about once in 20 um and it just becomes incredibly frustrating because you keep getting the oar into your quad or like it's just you know and you're you're not getting anywhere and your bed is just there anyway what that meant was that i instead of kind of rowing into the night and kind of having lesser blocks of sleep, I actually couldn't really, I felt I couldn't row at night and it was just, I used to sleep and I, I used to go to bed kind of earlier and I'd sleep for about six hours until it got uh, halfway kind of into dawn or just before dawn, you know, and then I'd get up again and start rowing again. So that meant I get decent blocks of sleep and um, I didn't really, you know, my, mine didn't suffer then in terms of sleep deprivation hugely and i suppose to allow, to, with one more thing on that just out of curiosity did you come across any helicopters or planes or, or anything like that around you you'd see you would see um the odd plane flying over the top and um you know leaving its um trails okay. but um the w one thing actually now you mentioned it that I forgot to that I would see every now and again was the International Space Station. So I saw first night. I well, it took me a while to realize what it was. I just saw this thing, and like it was like it looked like a star, as in the same type of shape and the same kind of um, in the same region or whatever. But then it was moving so quickly. I was like, what? And it was moving on this like obviously kind of. Um, what would you say, programmed route of the earth. Uh, it took me ages to realize what it was. And then it finally, one night, the, the penny dropped. And I was like, that must be the International Space Station. Because somebody was saying to me, like, it, it passes around the world in three hours or something, you know. So I kept seeing this thing in around the same spot, you know, roughly in, in the sky, most, well, the odd evening. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, what is that? And then, yeah, sure enough, that's what it was. That's class, that's class. It must, mm. must have been amazing to be out there at that time and just to see nature at, at its finest. Mm. And we'll, we'll, we'll bring on to what is down the line now for you. Um, yourself and Fergus Farrell are going to be attempting a new, uh, to set a Guinness World Record. And do you want to give us, um, instead of me explaining it, do you want to give an overview of what it is and how you're preparing for it And uh, as we're speaking off, off area around? Yeah, so it's called Project Empower. Um, basically, it's another ocean row. Um, you can cross the Atlantic um, two ways in a uh, sailboat or an ocean rowing boat using kind of the powers of Mother Nature. And the first one I've already discussed, which is the Canaries to Antigua. And the other way you can do it actually is from North America 
um, somewhere on the west coast of um, America or Canada and row back across the North Atlantic to Europe. So me and Gussie, who's um, Fergus, or I call him Gussie, are going to um, row from New York to Galway, our home town uh in 2022 so we're calling the project empower and it's yeah it's to be honest with you like i it's it's more it's much more extreme this route than uh the lower kind of um the southern north atlantic route which is the one i've already done because of basically conditions weather conditions so um so that it's just bigger seas, it's wilder seas, you have um, bigger obstacles to kind of navigate things called eddies, which are these giant whirlpools um, that you can get caught in for days, if not, you know, sometimes a week to 10 days, people get caught in these things going around in circles. Um, but the, the big, um, I would say what's going to be the big stressor up there is the cold, you know, it's it's going to be pretty relentless. One of the things I had in my favor on that southern route that I've already done is like the sun came up every day and you were talking about 30 degrees, you know, so you get through those kind of dawn hours, you get through when it's pretty, it's not that cold, but like, it's just, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable, right? Uh, when the sun hits you, like you're taking layers off and you just, you're basking in it's kind of, um, it's rays, it's really uplifting, whereas, you know, we're going to have very little of that. Um, we're going to have wind and cold and wet and that, you know, as we all know, the cold is is just relentless on the mind, you know, it just breaks your resolve. So that's going to be a huge, um, a huge factor in, in the kind of difficulty of this um, ocean row. Um, yeah, and of course, it stemmed, this idea stemmed from my last row and, and just knowing that you know, I'm from the west of Ireland, same as yourself, and um, that is actually one part of the world that is um, at the end of a transatlantic ocean rowing route. Like, there's very few, you know, so you can go across from the route I've already gone, you can end up in probably one of the um, Caribbean islands, or you can end up actually in um, northern South America, a place called French Guyana or Guyana. Um, and then you can cross, of course, the Pacific, but basically the only place you can, due, due to um, currents and due to... Um, uh, times of the year, if you cross Pacific, the only place you can really finish is in Northern Australia. If you cross the Indian Ocean, you can only go from Australia to um, Madagascar. It's very difficult to get past that. So like Ireland actually and the UK, Southern UK and France, like they're all on that route, you know. So it's it's kind of, we're in a way, it's a little bit unusual that's actually accessible for us. And then obviously having rode an ocean before and, and had a, an incredible experience and, and knowing I want to do it again, I was like, wouldn't it just be fucking amazing to be able to row into your hometown after, you know, um, the battle of a lifetime basically across the North Atlantic. So that was always in the back of my head is something I wanted to do. And, and now it's in, it's in the calendar for uh, summer uh, 2022. And it's, um, it's something special as well for uh, for Fergus. He he went through quite a difficult period a couple of years ago. Mm, actually, literally, I think we're nearly two years ago to the day. Gussie had an accident in his. He has a bus company out in Latin Rye, and he had an accident in his yard uh, where he um, he ruptured his 
T9, T10, and T11 uh, discs in his back, and T10, um, uh, the rupture of T10, basically 95% severed his spinal cord. Um, so he was he was paralyzed. Um, he, he went through emergency operation um, in the matter. Um, uh, he was paralyzed, and the surgeon gave him 5% chance to ever walk again. Um, and he said to him, listen, you do have a slight chance, like 5%, you know, we're not giving you any, um, there's, you know, we're not, we're not building up, we're not giving you any expectations here. It's like, it's probably not going to happen, but if it does happen, you'll feel some sort of connection with your lower limbs in the first week or two. And it wasn't until six weeks later, he got the first little twitch in his, uh, I think it was his right big toe. He said for whatever reason, he was concentrated on that through this whole time and he, he never really gave up and he believed he would walk again. And since he got that twitch, which is now two years ago, well, yeah, you know, nearly two years ago, um, he's just, he went on this, he was like unstoppable. He was like, I'm going to walk again, I'm going to walk again. And he went into the National Rehab Center and he gradually started to get his capacities back, you know, started to be able to go to the toilet on his own and you know, all these things that you don't really think about. Um, and uh, went into the NRH up in Dunleary and he said, I'm going to walk out of this place, went in on a wheelchair and, and literally walked out um, 16 weeks later. Uh, thanks to everybody up there. And of course, thanks to his own attitude and his own belief in himself. And um, yeah, and then a year after that accident happened, so nearly a year ago today, he um, he walked across the country from where the accident happened in Athenry to the the National Rehab Hospital in Dunleary. So 206 kilometers after kind of going in on a wheelchair, he came out and walked across the country. So yeah, he um, and he said to me, you know, he said I was telling him about this idea I had about rowing back to go, and he said I'd be interested in that and. Uh, it was originally meant to be me and my brother, um, but my brother had um, his fiance got pregnant and they just had a baby there a few weeks ago. So he pulled out uh, because of that and work commitments. So uh, kind of Gussie was in my mind as an alternative. And I saw him, um, I just, when I saw the whole, everything he went through and just the fact he just did not give up, he just kept working no matter how hard it got. And, you know, that's the attitude and that's the uh, mindset we're going to need. And it, for me, it was, I, was, I knew somebody I could trust to do the work out there in the Atlantic that's, that's going to need to be done. So I asked him and he said, yes, and yeah, we're going to hopefully have this amazing experience together. And has it been done before? Or like, are you setting, are you going to be the first person, you know, do it, uh, to do it? So uh, this route has been completed um, so to Ireland, it's only been completed about four times because Ireland's a bit higher. Uh, sorry, it's a little bit harder because it's a bit higher on the uh, of in, in terms of latitudes. Uh, mostly people would, if they're coming across the North Atlantic, they aim for the Scilly Isles in, in um, just off the coast of Cornwall because it's kind of the nearest point and the, it's not a, such a high latitude. So um, it's only been done a few times. It's never been done by an Irish pair. It's been done, and there's been one uh, one Irish guy has been part of a four-man uh, team that have rode from New York to the Scilly Isles, a guy called Ray Carroll. Uh, he's actually from Galway as well, um, and they set the world record there a few years ago. 
Um, but we are hoping to set the world record for the pairs, the quickest pairs crossing ever, the quickest two-man crossing ever. Um, and we'll be the first Irish people to ever, first Irish boat to ever roll this route. So, um, and it's very, it's very rarely done because of the extremes of it. And the percentage actually of successful attempts is really low. Like it's only 33%, 34%. Um, because of the difficulties of the route, like getting away from New York, like New York is the hardest place you can start from. Like if you wanted to nearly guarantee that you'd get across, you'd go from St. John's in, in Newfoundland in Canada. But, um, it's, that doesn't really interest me. You know, I, I'm, I'm not doing it just to get across. I'm doing it for the challenge. I'm doing it to be pushed to my limits. I'm doing it for the experience and for all those things and for the purity of it, I want it to be as hard as it can be. And the hardest place you can start from is Manhattan, New York, because of the, it's very difficult to get away from there in terms of tides and currents and uh, winds. But um, yeah, that's what we're there to do, you know. And um, how... Uh, how is preparation going for it, you know, in relation to training and organizing the boat? Yeah, so we're, we're kind of, it's very early days. Um, obviously, I have a couple of other expeditions before that. So we actually won't start training together until about nine months before the start. Um, Gussie's just kind of, so I'm helping him a little bit, like he's getting an erg at the moment. And I'll, I'll give him a, a very kind of... Um, rough outline of a program he can work on so by the time we get to nine months he's in a decent place to kind of even just start but um we're really in the kind of fundraising um taking the fundraising uh, side of the project at the moment so we are we're trying to raise the funds to um, purchase the boat and the boats are fucking expensive for these things um as i was saying to you beforehand the thing it doesn't have an engine doesn't have a sail and uh you're talking about like 75 80 grand for um for it you know but it's, it's highly obviously highly highly important that the quality in the build is um top notch because it's you know it's going to get the shit kicked out of it up there you know and it just has to be everything has to be high standard so we um the guy who built my last boat is building this boat, uh, a guy called Justin Adkins in the UK. He's one of only a few um, ocean rowing boat builders. And he really kind of, his values align with the values of the project. You know, it's all about like just the commitment and the passion and the purpose for it. And, you know, he's a, he's, he's kind of a guy who, you know, is incredibly passionate about ocean rowing and puts his heart and soul into all his bills. So yeah, so he's so we're we're trying to get the basically just trying to get the funding side of it going, and we've a crowdfunding actually happening at the moment, and then we're trying to bring in um, corporate partners, you know, and we're forming partnerships with businesses. So we're going through all that process at the moment, and you know, there's 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 massive value in you know, in this project for businesses. It's just trying to show them that at the moment is quite difficult because like most businesses are in crisis mode, you know, understandably, you know, but um, yeah, we're working away anyway. And we, we know that anyone who does come on as in partnerships is going to get a hell of a lot back for, for what they invest in us. Very good. Very good. And um, one quote that really drew me and it kind of, Remind me of, of uh, what Tom Crean and all them did years ago. Um, we hope to give future generations of Ireland and the world a real image and touchable action to emulate and inspire them to dream big in whatever avenue of life they propose. Mm. Pursuit, apologies. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, we, as humans, we are wired to emulate, you know, if you can't, if you never see it, you can't do it. You can't be it. Right. So like I, um, I remember obviously the last time I crossed the Atlantic and it was into a, a far off Caribbean Island in the sun. Um, I was getting messages from all sorts of people all around the country. I, I, I just keep thinking, imagine if that's, me and Gussie rowing into our hometown in the middle of an Irish summer, like I mean, there's a good chance the whole country will be interested in it at some level or other, which means that kids will have their eyes on this. Like they'll, you know, they'll have no choice but to see it nearly. And like that, if you see something like that is, it is very, it touches certain emotions that can only ignite your fuel to search out a little bit more in yourself. Right. And, and, and we all have that capacity. There's more in us all. There's so much more in us all. It's just using the tools at our disposal and the, you know, the emotions at our disposal to bring that out. And, and we really feel genuinely no bullshit feel that if we row into Galway Bay, disheveled, bearded, but having fought our way across the Atlantic, that we will um, show people that there's a little bit more in themselves and empower them a little bit. And only just curiosity as well, and just if, if there is people, you know, listen to this, um, what benefits would, you know, sponsor, you know, companies you know, who sponsor the event or invest in it, what benefits would it be for them down the line? What would they get out of it? Yeah, so, we, like... Whatever the whoever the company is, we, we will work with them to tailor a package where they get the most out of it. So that that could be a few different areas. Like that could be in in terms of um, uh, the publicity, uh, the social media side of it. Like we're going to be able to send videos from the Atlantic, you know. So we'd be able to send um, a brand. Um, you know, exclusive videos for their social media. Like these things. Well, last time I crossed they got organically got great traction. So it's a, it's a good opportunity there. They, you know, what might be more appealing to them is kind of workshops around leadership and preparation and mindset, you know, so me and Gussie will come in, we'll bring the boat and, um, you know, work within the company. I do some workshops, we do some talks, you know, pre and post expedition. Um, so they're getting value that way within their, um, organization, you know, around things like mindset or, um, preparation or leadership or whatever it may be um yeah so we feel like there's there's loads of scope there for for companies to kind of sit down with us and and you know have that conversation so we we kind of um, tailor it as best to their um uh value as we can and if people want to find out more about it um where would be the best point to call um www.projectempower.ie um that that's the website and uh that's where we're kind of that's the great place to kind of start looking into it all and you'll see our social media feed there on that front page and the in the, the crowdfunding link and all that and um yeah and uh and then you can link up with the social medias and, and kind of see the more day-to-day -day stuff and and um yeah it's uh, an exciting um it's going to be an exciting kind of period in the run-up to that, making that happen. We'll, we'll finish now in a second. I just have one question that I find very interesting um, asking people. Uh, what, what is your morning routine? Would you be up here? Are you an early morning person or what? Uh... Yeah. Um, 
So it, it does change um, as in like I bring in elements. I'm always playing around with it and seeing what works and feeling what works and giving it a, a decent period of time. But I am early, like I'm kind of half five, riser, six o'clock, um, has been half five recently. Um, and then I, the, the routine is pretty simple and basic. Like now I have done a million different kind of, uh, versions of this but at the moment where it stands is just uh, I like to get outside um, get some well at the moment there's not there's no sunlight at half five but I like to get some light into my eyes normal natural light um, and get my feet on the ground just to do a bit of grounding and then simply I just go I do um, uh, a little bit of a walk with my dog around seven or so after I've eaten a little bit and I do some kind of movement mobility work uh, out on the walk you know um, and then I come back and I like to train and get that done and then it's just kind of I spend actually a lot of the time in front of the computer at the moment in terms of um, you know the fundraising elements and emails and all that sort of stuff so um, so I like to kind of get those things done before I do sit down in front of the computer. Um, I saw your Instagram recently and you uh, you go through a fair amount of sausages six Black and white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's a, a Sunday. I, um, I, I'm at the moment, I'm, well, I'm in the very early stages of re-preparing for Mount Everest uh, next April and May. So what that means is I'm quite restrict, restrictive with my diet uh, Monday to Saturday, but Sunday I always have a, a cheap meal. Um, sometimes it's Sunday evening. A lot of the time it's Sunday evening. Um, you know, have some like Supermax or whatever. Uh, been a good Galway boy there. Um, <laughs> but at the moment it's all about fries. I'm just cooking up these enormous fries on a kind of Sunday lunchtime. And um, yeah, and uh, believe it or not, I was I could still have eaten more yesterday after that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And um, look, I'll uh, I'll wrap it up there because I took a lot of your time. Damien, thanks very much for taking time out and coming on Interview Podcast. And look, best look with everything going forward. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. Really enjoyed that. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Damien. Such a, a fascinating insight into what he's done so far and definitely a huge amount to come down the line. Um, that's all from us on this week's episode. Please do get in contact with the show if you want to contribute in any way at all. Uh, please do follow us on our social media channels. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at underscore on the ball team building. Over on Facebook, it's on the ball team building. And over on Twitter, it's at we are on the ball two. That is the digit two. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe. Remember, cred and not fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all again for listening.